Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning for Every Day is Earth Day. Today we are talking with a panel of scientists that have been put together by an independent nonprofit organization from the American Association for the Advancement of Science to provide scientists sources on important topics. And today's topic is about renewable energy and the grid. First up is Dr. Melissa Lott, a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. And she's going to be providing a breakdown of energy resources generated and used in the United States. Um, So when we look at renewable energy and the grid, the first thing that I want to get into is what do we mean when we say energy and where do we currently get it when we're in the United States here today? So when I talk about energy or the energy sector, I'm talking about four buckets of things. So one is electricity, but the other buckets around transportation, industry, and buildings. And so with transportation today, we use mostly petroleum-based fuels, gasoline, and diesel. In the future, we may use more and more amounts of electricity, and that's a trend we're already seeing today. Those different parts of the energy sector produce emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, broadly in two ways. The first is through burning things, combustion, and the second is through process emissions, which we run into a lot when we come into industry, where we have all these chemical reactions creating the stuff that we want to use in our daily lives. So when we look at our overall energy supplies, we see that most of it comes from fossil fuels today, but a large and growing part of it comes from renewable energy. So wind and solar, but also biomass and then hydropower. So using water to produce electricity which has been a type of firm power that's around 24-7, 365 for a long period of time. Now, when we talk about the different commitments and the different goals that the United States have set, we can talk about our nationally determined contributions that are part of the Paris Climate Agreement. These are non-binding commitments, but they are ones that we look at when we talk about setting our goals. Within this, I want to highlight two things. So one is just what it will take to reach what is our mid-century 2050 goal um, as a part of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is to get emissions down to something called net zero, where we found a balance of the emissions we put into the air and what we take out. So it's not absolute zero. We might still put emissions out, but we will balance those out. And within that, we've made this commitment. The second thing I want to highlight, which is to shifting to carbon pollution-free electricity by 2035. And the reason that we talk about electricity specifically is because electricity is the workhorse. It's the backbone of reaching net zero goals, of solving climate change, of decarbonizing. And so what we see is that the electricity we use today is one of the front runners in how we can bring down emissions, but it's also the enabler of bringing down emissions in the other parts of the energy sector. So that's transportation, industry, and buildings. So the question is, where do we get electricity, so that subset of energy, from today and where might we get it from in the future if we want to achieve these different goals. So what we see today are where we've gotten our electricity from in the past. And what you can see is that today we get a little bit more than a third, so roughly just about 40% today of our electricity from clean or zero carbon sources. So nuclear, that's the workhorse of zero carbon power today, but growing is wind and then solar as well. Those are getting much wider over time. And then on top of that, we see some pretty stable hydro and then other types of renewables. As we move into the future towards that 2035 goal, what I did is I picked a bunch of studies that are from the International Energy Agency, from University of California, Berkeley, and then a broader net zero future study that says out of Princeton that says, how would we do this? And the bottom line is, 
Getting to net zero means using a lot of variable renewables like wind and solar. So those things that are around some of the time, but not other times. And then also complementing that with other types of zero carbon electricity, which could come from continued hydro, another type of renewable, but also nuclear, and then other things that we're bringing into the system, which could be things like fossil fuels with technologies that can capture greenhouse gases or other things. These numbers are for across the United States. When we zoom into individual communities, the mix can look a lot different. So I'm sitting in New York City in New York State today. We pull a lot of hydropower from across the border, actually, from Canada to our north. And we want to do increasing amounts of that as we go to net zero because that's a resource we have access to. But in other parts of the country where I've lived, hydro is not as readily accessible. So when I lived in the Southwest, when I lived in New Mexico and California, we just didn't have as much of that. But we had other resources like increasing amounts of solar. We had some wind. We had other things we can pull from. So these are the national level numbers, but they look different when you go to local levels. Dr. Lott, you've mentioned a lot of renewables to get to carbon zero, but how will that happen? So when I describe what thousands of studies have looked at when it talks about the path to net zero for electricity, what I see across all those studies is that we need a team. We need a lot of different technologies to win the game. And by winning the game, what I mean is having reliable, affordable, and clean electricity available for everyone in every region of the United States. These principles actually apply globally as well, but I'm zooming in on the US. But this is how I break down the team. So on this team, if we wanna win the game, affordable, reliable, and clean electricity, we start with so wind and solar mostly, though it could be other things like tidal. But wind and solar, man, when they're around, they're so cheap. We want to use them. They give us a lot of advantages. But sometimes they're not around. The sun sets, the wind stops blowing for periods of time. that could be hours or it could be weeks. Not with the sun, but with the wind, it could be weeks. And so that's when we go to our different types of energy storage. So energy storage can be batteries, but not just batteries. It can also be things that move electricity across seasons, like thermal storage, storing heat or hydrogen. But those forms of renewables also have some limitations. So what then? need some things like geothermal and hydro, but also fossil fuels or carbon capture or nuclear. So when I say firm power, here's what I mean. It's around 24, 7, 365. When I want it, it's available. It might not be the cheapest in a moment, but it makes the entire system cheap. So I wanted to briefly in about 20 seconds, talk about some of the barriers that exist to achieving that zero electricity in the U.S. by 2035. The short answer, which I'll give you a reference to, is that technology isn't the issue. The issue is non-technical barriers that take a lot of different forms. So we know how to build a grid, but our existing power grid, the wires between our power plants that connect with our homes, isn't strong enough to do what we want it to do. And we haven't figured out how to site and permit and build things. We haven't figured out where we're willing to build things. And this entire equation runs into stuff like geopolitics, supply chains, community engagements, and concerns about energy and security if power prices go up. Thank you, Dr. Lott. And also on the panel is Dr. Sarah Kurtz, a professor at the University of California, Merced's, the School of Engineering. She's going to be talking about solar energy with a focus on trends in efficiency and cost relative to our national goals for converting to solar and the challenges to increase solar capacity and use. But for solar, it's really a new era. It's been so successful that it's difficult to sustain the growth rate that we've had historically. Historically, we doubled the number of solar panels that were deployed about every two years. And also, I'll talk about how we should change the way we think about it. The big news in solar is how much the price has dropped. You may have heard that solar is too expensive, and it was in 2008. Now, you can now buy a solar panel 
for less than the cost to buy a window of the same size. Or if you went to paint the walls, if you paid somebody to paint the walls in my room, it costs about the same for a square meter of solar panel as it does to, to paint the, the windows in my room. So now the cost challenges have more to do with other costs associated with getting that system installed. Solar panels often come with 25-year warranties, which is great. They last a long time, but customers would like a payback time that's short. They don't want to wait 25 years. So solar now can work well for things like pension plans or something where you want a low-risk investment for long-term investment. But a key to deploy it quickly is to look for business models that can enable a large upfront investment with a long-term return. You'll see the Inflation Reduction Act gives a lot of opportunities. There are also a myriad of local incentive programs that make the investment attractive, but it's really complicated. Now, solar is growing so much, it's becoming critical to our daily lives today. On an annual basis, you can see the numbers been going up steadily. Currently, more than 27% of the electricity generated in California is from solar. Indeed, there are a number of states across the U.S., Nevada, Massachusetts, and others that are doing very well. The U.S. as a whole is at a much lower 5%. As we rely more and more on solar electricity, we should begin to think about it differently. We not only rely on it to be able to keep the lights on, also we're looking at being able to use that solar electricity at night. This graph shows the batteries charging when the sun comes up in the morning, and then discharging when the sun sets in the evening. California now has seven gigawatts of batteries. This is another really impressive success story, another bright spot when you read the news. These store electricity during the day and then provide it back to the grid after sunset. And if you don't know what seven gigawatts means, typically California is using about 25 to 30 gigawatts. So this may be a fourth or even sometimes a third of what the demand is. Can you speak to the effectiveness of batteries for large-scale power? Sure. I might just note that we already have in California enough batteries installed to be able to meet something approaching a third of the, the total electricity. Batteries have been really actually lucrative for something we call ancillary services, which is to help keep the grid stable on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. It's true that the batteries are not quite as low as in cost as we'd like, but the cost has like dropped by something like a factor of two in the last year. It's looking a lot like that the price was way too high, and now it's coming down so fast. With all the supply chain issues, it's really hard to sort out what the actual cost is. And there are also a lot of issues having to do with permitting and things. But the, the primary challenges left are how long will those batteries last? You all know like your cell phone battery works great the first when you buy it, but then like two years later, is it still working well? Making the technology so that the batteries don't wear out, making the technology so that there aren't fires. Those are the kinds of things that we're looking at that still need to be solved, but that's on a, a price trajectory that will enable it to be successful for diurnal storage, that is to store it at night and give you the electricity during the day. It's much more difficult if you're looking at putting in so many batteries that you would have weeks of power, then that's still a major problem. A question is, what if we put solar over our parking lots and charged our electric vehicles there? Then you wouldn't need to use the batteries because you're using the batteries in the car and they charge at the right time. 
transportation needs electricity. And that's the way we can grow solar faster is to begin to use more electric vehicles. So just to leave you with the concluding thought, the beautiful thing about renewable energy, the more you use it, the cheaper it gets, which paves the pathway to prosperity for the whole world. Thank you, Dr. Kurtz. A question I have is, how will some of these clean energy alternatives affect the environment long term? For example, are they truly cleaner? Could old or abandoned solar panels or wind turbine parts leave behind toxic pollutants? I'd like to direct this to Dr. Aaron Baker, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, a faculty director of the Energy Transition Institute. So one thing that's important is there is no perfect technology anywhere that has zero impact on anything. Or I should be careful not to say maybe it is, but I I haven't seen it, right? Um, And so we really want to think about it in comparison. And from everything I've looked at, solar and wind, in comparison to fossil fuels for energy generation, have a vastly lower environmental impact. They don't have no environmental impact, right? There is some environmental impact. But again, we have to remember innovation and ingenuity. So once we're faced with large amounts of solar and large amounts of wind turbines, and we're going to have to figure out what to do at the end of life, people can innovate and find ways of doing that that will minimize the impact on the environment. But overall, compared to what they're replacing fossil fuels, their impacts are small. Dr. Lott, could you explain how renewable energy will create less waste than fossil fuels? So we burn natural gas, we burn coal, and then we have to extract coal to replace it, these types of things. When it comes to solar and wind, we haven't perfected every part of it, far from that, but we do have ways of recovering tons of the materials that are involved in them. They're really valuable. We don't want to dig them out of the ground and have to establish new mines. We figured out ways to recover a lot of it, and we will get better with that over time. It's something that's being considered today. How do we set up recycling systems for wind, for solar, also for batteries? How do we recover all that valuable material so that we can put it back into the system? It's not something that we're 20 years or 30 years into having it be 80% of our electricity, and now we're trying to figure it out. We are thinking about it from a much earlier stage of development. Another question I have is where do government incentive programs for renewable energy, such as rooftop solar, play a role in the renewable energy transition, how effective are they? So I can answer quickly to say the Inflation Reduction Act provides a lot of incentives for a lots of types of things. It's very confusing right now. The IRS is rolling out the detailed guidance about what will count and what won't count. And the net metering programs and other ones that are statewide, there is a website, um, Desire, that will enable you to go on and see what's available in your state because it's very complicated. The number one thing that would be most useful is to have longer term plans about how they will ramp down slowly. The idea that, well, we extend it for another three years and then maybe it ends for a year or two and then we'll put it back up for three years. It's a recipe for putting all the companies out of business, having some understanding of what you can do a business plan in the next few years and having a stable understanding of what's going to be there and not there, I think would be the most useful thing to get a healthy marketing system going. One concern we have is that these incentives don't necessarily go to everyone equal. So rooftop solar is a good example. The incentives tend to go to kind of middle-class people, people who own houses, not in the city, you can't have shade on your roof. You have to have a roof to have, to have that. 
And so it's a little bit inequitable right now. And so one thing that I think states are thinking about and working on is how to retool the incentives and so that we can make them available to a broader range of people. In previous interviews, I've talked with experts about the capability of the grid and how we've had power failures because of a lack of infrastructure. Can you talk about the lack of transmission capability in the United States and how that affects incorporation of wind and solar energy into the grid? So definitely more transmission would help. We need to invest in the entire grid from transmission, the really big wires that go from power plants to communities, and also the small wires that then take it to our homes. So limiting factors on how many things we can connect in our homes and on that side and how many different rooftop solar panels and other things, it comes down to those little wires that come to our homes, which are not fit for purpose for what we're trying to do moving forward in most parts of the United States. But that's not a technical problem. We know how to solve that. We just have to make the choice to do it. I want to thank each of you for talking about renewable energy and the grid today. I have one last question for each of you. What is one message you want listeners to take home with them? First, Melissa Lott. We need a lot of technologies to get this done. Each one has their role, and when they play together on a team, it works out really well. When they try to go solo, it doesn't work that great. So that's the grid, the wires, all the technologies that connect on both sides. Thank you. Sarah Kurtz. Similarly, There's nothing out there, no solution that's perfect. We should be willing to accept that every solution will have um, some small downside. And if we can look at the, the bigger picture of using all of them, as Melissa just said, we will get there fast. Thanks. And Aaron Baker. All right. Well, I'm just going to say offshore wind has immense value in the fight against climate change. And the government can help by setting goals, by providing green bonds, and by working to streamline all the administrative processes that need to be done to get it installed. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. 